is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, remember when the world basically shut down in early 2020 when the pandemic started? We were told we all had to stay home to both flatten the curve and save lives. Well, a new analysis from Johns Hopkins University just came out, and it says all those lockdowns had very little impact on saving lives in both the U.S. and Europe, so we will go in-depth. With the worst of the Omicron seemingly behind us as cases continue to drop, many doctors are now saying it is time to start easing COVID restrictions, and that includes taking off masks. The U.S. has just deployed hundreds of more troops to Europe to dissuade Russia from invading Ukraine, but will that work? A local state lawmaker introducing a new bill he says could help stop school shootings. Uh, does it go too far in what it demands of parents in disclosing whether they own guns? Hate crimes are up in L.A., so much so, recorded more than any other big city in the country. The numbers might not tell the whole story, so we'll take a look. And then we'll look at uh, cancel culture, why it impacts some high-profile people, but not others. Uh, we're talking Whoopi Goldberg, avoiding the worst of it over comments about the Holocaust, although some people are, are even unhappy she's on suspension yeah. uh, after apologizing. Uh, Joe Rogan escaped it to Jeff Zucker out as uh, head of CNN. So we'll kind of look at all of that. So yesterday we did, we did a big thing on Wordle. Yes. Did you did you wake I, up and play today? I, 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 I did last night. I thought I, I got it. It took about four hours. Is that is that good? <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Is that good? One word an hour. <laughs> and then just, just let that kind of yeah, yeah. ruminate and yeah. figure out, OK, where's, what's my next move here? So I can go on Twitter now and boast that it took me four hours. Vicky got it. Yeah. Because she said, you know, she was nervous about that one. Right. But uh, yeah, okay. she posted. So. <laughs> all right. We're all here. <laughs> let's start with uh, COVID lockdowns. Uh, and uh, deaths. Dr. Amesha Dalja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. He didn't work on the analysis we're going to now talk about, though it did come from some uh, colleague of his over at Johns Hopkins. Doctor, thanks for being back with us, as always. Thanks for having me. So when uh, everybody, as we just said, locked down, we were at least led to believe two things. One, it was going to flatten the curve and, and make it uh, easier for hospitals to deal with the the surge, which did come, certainly, uh, of COVID patients. But I think we were also led to believe that it was also going to protect many of us, uh, maybe all of us, from from death. But the figures don't support that part, do they? No, I don't think that they, they do. And I think that has to do with the way those policies were executed and some of the cascading negative impacts and other kind of implications that those policies had. Uh, no one and I was never uh, a proponent of that this lockdown policy. No one had thought that these were going to be the best tools, these kind of blunt tools that don't differentiate between a risky activity and a non-risky activity, ones that drive a lot of behavior underground, which could be more risky, for example, or, or, or ones that have that, that are not targeted. And I think what we see is that these didn't work so well. Many people didn't comply with them. And we also find that many people did a lot of the social distancing on their own, even if there wasn't a lockdown. Because if you look at cell phone mobility data, it often fell before an official lockdown was in place. So I think that these really are not the policy of choice and never have been and, and shouldn't be something that anybody thinks of using as a, a tool for any future pandemic. Yeah. And in hindsight, and maybe going forward, if we have to do things like this again, it's probably more about limiting 
gatherings or at least trying to get people to do that right because we knew and we know how this spreads it is you know person to person and lots of families or parties inside but when you close beaches or parks or whatever and then you do the quote-unquote lockdown well that limits stuff that is safer than being cooped up in a room with with you or your friends and your family and, and giving each other a virus Exactly. So if you, for example, can't go eat outdoors at a, at a restaurant or play basketball outside, people are going to say, why don't you just come over and, and we'll do something indoors, which is higher risk. So it ends up making behavior paradoxically more dangerous because you have prohibited people's ability to do things in a safer manner. And one of the other aspects is that it really stunts the ability of the population to learn how to risk calculate because they're kind of being hit over the head with this abstinence-only approach when it's much more important, especially with the virus that's destined for endemicity, that people know how to navigate a world in which COVID-19 is going to be present. And I think we lost that opportunity by sticking to this abstinence-only approach for so long. And it's something that I think we really have to go back and re-examine because there are so many negative impacts on the way that the pandemic policy was handled, that we have to make sure that this never is uh, something that happens again. So would the would the Chinese make the argument, doctor, that, uh, well, of course, lockdowns didn't really work in the U.S. and in Europe, because as, as you yourself just pointed out, uh, a lot of people really didn't take it to heart. There were all kinds of violations. And I think the Chinese government would argue that, yeah, lockdowns really do work if you actually lock things down. Yeah, if that's a society that you want to live in, where people can get nailed into their house and get arrested for um, for for violating that, if you want that authoritarian type of regime in place, then yes, of course, if you if you prohibit by force social interaction, then obviously cases are going to fall and people are not going to um, have severe illness because you you have basically forbade life as you know it to that. And I don't think that's something that should be on the table because people ha- have individual rights, irrespective of what the Chinese government thinks about it. And I think that's not the solution when you can do targeted types of interventions that actually work. You know, for example, the majority of our deaths were three quarters were in people above the age of 65. And a large component of those were in nursing homes. Why wasn't there better nursing home policy? That would have made a bigger dent in, in deaths if we would have actually gave nursing homes the resources to be able to take care of these patients and to do isolation and to do infection control. But instead, many states did the opposite and actually sent contagious patients to those nursing homes and basically in a powder keg environment. So there's a lot. I, I think this is a false alternative that you either have to do things with, like China does or you get no benefit. I think targeted approaches reflective of what the vi- what what is high risk, what is low risk are important. And I think also giving people guidance to do things voluntarily if they want to. If you read the paper, they also talk about the fact that many places did things voluntarily, even if there wasn't a lockdown. So that will obviously make a lockdown look look not as not as good because people were already social distancing and, and omitting certain social activities. So I think what we want to do is have voluntary best practices that are really based on transmission risks that are there and that are not one size fits all, that they're much more precision guided than not blunt. Dr. Amesh Sadalja, senior scholar, Johns Hopkins University. More doctors across the country are pushing for an easing of COVID restrictions. It seems Omicron has already peaked, at least in some parts of this country and certainly in many parts of Europe. And some countries like Denmark are moving back to a pre-2020 normal. So should we do that here in the U.S., here in California. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner is a uh, epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. 
So, uh, as I just mentioned, Denmark uh, is pretty much saying, okay, it's time to think of this as an endemic uh, disease. We have to live with it, so let's go on with life. Are we there yet here? Well, I think we're definitely getting there. So we're hearing from a lot of uh, big voices in the pandemic from the East Coast, deans of School of Public Health, uh, CNN News, um, you know, talking heads and people here in California at UCSF that, you know, we're in a different place than where we were certainly a year ago. Uh, yesterday was the lowest number of cases reported in LA County since, you know, mid to end of December. So in more than five or six weeks, we have, you know, population immunity due to uh, vaccination or prior infection. CDC a week and a half ago came out and finally confirmed through their studies that people who recovered from infection have equal or better immunity than people who've been vaccinated. So things are much, much different. And, you know, I think we're at a place where doctors like myself are saying, well, now it's more about personal responsibility, personal choices, what can people do to protect themselves at an individual level? So do we do a route of let's come up with some guidelines for hospitalizations or whatever and then dial back? Or is it maybe the other one, the quicker one, just, hey, you know what, let's say no more masks. And then if we have to bring these back for the winter, we'll do it. Um, but a personal responsibility, personal risk gauge kind of thing and do it the quicker route. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there are people calling for uh, quicker routes. I mean, um, a couple of months ago was about, you know, an average of 700 hospitalizations. So we're not yet in L.A. County at 700 hospitalizations. We're still at a few thousand hospitalizations. So um, but that doesn't mean, you know, we couldn't have a different um, off ramp um, for a while. It was February 15th. So they were going to end indoor mask mandates on February 15th. So I think we're, we're, we are getting to a place where um, authorities are definitely feeling more comfortable about, you know, loosening institutional or population level restrictions, but still making recommendations that say, hey, well, if you're indoors, if you're in a crowded setting, and if you're at risk for severe consequences, the best thing to do is wear a mask. And also remember, there's still, you know, a proportion of people who are unvaccinated, have not been infected, those people really should get vaccinated and protect themselves. But of course, here's where it gets really murky, right? So you go to a movie theater and let's say they get rid of the policy as movie theaters currently have about being masked while you're inside, which is effective or not, depending on, on the theater and the people who happen to be there at any given time. But at least that's the policy. Effective on the size of the popcorn bucket. And the, right. How long it takes. <laughs> it takes the three popcorn. hours then. But, but but that said, I mean, we do then run the risk of running into this area where the person sitting next to you says, well, OK, I no longer have to wear a mask. And so I'm not as he or she, you know, coughs and sneezes. And you're sitting next to them in a crowded theater. OK, you've got a mask on, but you're not going to feel as comfortable if they're not. Right. So, you know, it's, it's going to move to this sense of what, what, what is my tolerance for, you know, personal risk. So, you know, am I a young, healthy, vaccinated person where, you know, the likelihood of having severe disease being hospitalized is very, very low. You know, I'm going to remain sitting next to this person and there's probably a bunch of other things I may be more uh, concerned about. But if I'm an older, you know, person, I'm immune compromised, and um, I'm particularly worried about uh, acquiring severe disease, 
I'm going to move away or I'm going to put my mask on or I'm going to, you know, going to avoid going to the theater that day. But um, we've also shifted a bit from focusing on the prevention of controlling the spread of infection to recognizing while we have treatments available, we can prevent people from getting hospitalized. And Omicron taught us, um, if anything, that all our interventions are really not that potent at preventing the spread all the restrictions, all the mask wearing, all the social distancing, but also taught us that if we can get people early treatment, um, we can prevent them from going to the hospital. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine, USC Keck School of Medicine. Coming up, more hate crimes were reported in L.A. than any other major city in the country. And is cancel culture real? We'll look into what it is and why some celebrities lose their jobs and careers over remarks and actions while others do not. Right now, U.S. boasting its military presence in Central and Eastern Europe over concerns about a possible Russian invasion in Ukraine. Uh, thousands of troops um, going to go. This comes as the White House has stopped calling an invasion of Ukraine imminent. Mike Glenn, Pentagon reporter for The Washington Times at the Pentagon right now. Mike, thanks for being here. So this is uh, what? Parts a message to Putin and parts a message, I guess, to our allies saying, you know, we're serious uh, about this uh, NATO agreement. Yeah, exactly. Uh, hi, it's good good to talk to you today. Uh, yeah, it, it's it is primarily to Putin, but also to, to remind uh, to to remind him that uh, the U.S. Uh, takes NATO seriously, and to reassure some of these nervous our, you know our nervous NATO allies who are uh, who are on the border uh, with Russia. Uh, I mean, the president just today formally announced that he's going to be sending about two thousand troops from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, to Poland and Germany, and then shift about a thousand other troops already based in Germany to Romania uh, because of of, of the, the Russian buildup there. Okay, so can one presume that provided there is no Russian invasion of Ukraine, that in order to to sufficiently de-escalate this uh, crisis, that uh, both sides are going to have to walk away with something? Uh, what does Putin walk away with? I don't see Putin wants uh, to, uh, to reassurance, promise that Ukraine will never be part of uh, of NATO, and he wants U.S. troops to stop uh, working, uh, you know, doing so many operations within the NATO countries that are on its border, and it's going to be and and both the U.S. and NATO have categorically said that is not on, you know, that is not. Uh, you know, doable, that uh, Russia does not uh, get to dictate who is part of the alliance. Um, so whether or not they can be, uh, you know, he, he can be assuaged with something, you know, with, you know, a less uh, dramatic, uh, some other kind of uh, prize to to uh, tell his people, you know, to show him that he got something out of this. Uh, you know, I, who knows? You know, I don't see where where they can go. I guess there's, there's some idea, and, and this has been mentioned. You know, you can always say, and the U.S. can say, we're always going to depict, we're always going to defend and, and help protect, you know, sovereign democracies. Right. But then the White House is saying, and Jen, Jen Psaki was saying this just the other day, no, we're never going to say a never, 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 never about any NATO country. We're not going to draw that line. Right, and they are, un, un, you know, realistically, uh, Ukraine is unlikely to be granted membership anytime soon uh, but they can't yeah but as you said they they really they can't say that because that would make you know Putin def, the, the de facto winner of this 
uh, sort of, uh, you know, this uh, flexing muscle contest that that he's doing right now. But it's it's looking very it's looking very honest. And the, the people here in the Pentagon, they are getting concerned because not and not only are you, is he does he have you know your typical tanks and artillery, uh, aviation up there on the border. He's also moving up logistics and like uh, elements like hosp- you know, army hospitals, uh, portable army hospitals up to the border. And that's, that's not a good sign that, you know, that the de-escalation may be in the offing anytime soon. Uh, I mean, is it possible to discern from your vantage point whether people in the Pentagon, what percentage think that this is just a, a giant bluff on the part of Putin as opposed to those who think that, no, he he's serious about this? I think, you know, it's, is he serious about what? Is he serious in, about... Invading. Uh, no, 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 yeah, that's what I'm trying, you know, oh. there, there, you know, there's a couple of different, uh, you know, scenarios. He could... You know, some people have have wondered if he's just going to try to take the entire country. Uh, that is going to be now. Now that's you know might be too much to chew to bite off of because Ukraine is like the second or third largest country in Europe. It will not be easy to sort of capture the country, but he could quite easily, you know, probably quite easily slice off a piece of the area and the, the sort of uh, the part of, of Ukraine is like in the Donbass area that has a large Russian-speaking sort of population there, the one that's been part of the problem, you know, uh, between Ukraine and Russia now. I mean, so I think, you know, the ones I've talked to, see, I've talked to some people who think it's more likely they would move it to sort of secure that part of Ukraine rather than, you know, try and, you know, capture the capital and, you know, put it all, put the entire country under, you know, Russian control. Mike Glenn, Pentagon reporter, Washington Times, uh, there at the Pentagon right now. Mike, thanks. Well, if you have a kid and uh, also happen to own a gun, you could soon have to let your child's school know about it. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Local state lawmaker has a new bill meant to help prevent school shootings like what we saw in November in Michigan. It would mandate a backpack locker car searches if there is a credible threat or some kind of danger of a mass casualty. Now, it would also require school administrators to collect information from parents about guns stored at home. So the question is, is that going too far? With us is the bill's author, State Senator Anthony Portentino, a Democrat from La Cañada. Thank you for being with us. Um, well, I mean, it, I can hear some parents, especially if they own guns and, and they're gun advocates, saying, whoa, wait a minute, uh, you want to do what? Well, let's, let's start with the basic premise that when we send our kids off to school, we want them to be safe and we want them to come home. And unfortunately, we've seen a, a rise in school shootings. And, you know, recently we saw the tragedy in Michigan because the school district was notified of a credible threat and, you know, had a paralysis of inaction. And unfortunately, that threat was real and and people died. So we have a significant problem that needs to be addressed, you know. And so what I'm trying to do is attack it from three different areas. One, let's empower districts by mandating that they follow through on credible threats. Because, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, you know, that's not going to happen here or I don't want to anger somebody. And, you know, let's see what happens. So let's take that hesitation off the table and say, if there's a credible threat, you must investigate it. They already have the power to search lockers. They already have the power to search cars. They already have the power to search uh, 
backpacks, but I'm saying you must do it if there's a credible threat. Second of all, um, it, it's not out of line to let a school district know if you have a gun at home and if it's properly stored. California has safe storage laws of weapons. I know because I wrote them and I passed them. Um, and so we have the best safe storage laws in the country. So by saying to a parent, do you have a gun in your house? Is it locked up? And does your kid have access to that gun? That's not for publication on an, on the internet. That's so that district knows that uh, that gun is safely stored. And, you know, God forbid that teenager becomes embroiled in a plot to shoot up the school. They know that that teenager has access to a weapon. And so, and then the third piece of the bill says, let's educate parents about California safe storage laws so they know what's expected to them and how they're supposed to keep their guns out of hands that are going to do harm with them. If the safe storage law is working like it's supposed to, though, then the teen shouldn't have access to it. And that would hopefully negate the whole school portion of this, wouldn't it? Because aren't you going to get it from from both sides here? People are going to say, you don't need to know if I have a gun at home. It's my right to have a gun. I'll, I'll store it safely because I'm supposed to. And then, you know, on just the privacy side. So everyone's going to come after you for this one. Well, I think 63% of the shootings, the, the teenager has gotten the gun from a, a, a home, a you know, parent or a relative, or it, it's the family weapon uh, in an over, you know, in a significant number of the shootings. So that is a real problem. So, you know, yes, we pass a law and it works in many instances, but as you know, uh, we want to make sure that we cover all of our bases. And so uh, I do think it's valid to say, let's know if there's a weapon and let's also, don't forget the education piece. Let's help those parents understand what it means to be safely storing your weapon and what it means to keep it out of the wrong hand. Okay, so you know, let's say it passes and, and that's the law, and, and now you know certain parents have, have weapons at home. So uh, I'm still not 100% clear what good that information is going to do you. So let's say that teenager is involved in a credible threat. Uh, don't you want to know if that teenager have access to a gun? You know, so let's start. So I think you have to start the conversation with when the threat, credible threat happens, what is that administration going to do? So what we're saying is they have to investigate it. And if they have a database that says that child has access to a gun, they know that that threat level is even elevated another notch up. And so that's where all three of these things work in concert. What you guys are doing is taking one piece in a silo and saying, all right, that's that. And why is that, you know, in the bill. You have to look at all three pieces in concert with each other because they're very complementary. Why not just search the, the kid anyways if there is a credible threat? I mean, you should probably look in the backpack, right? Oh, absolutely. That's what we're mandating to do. And as you saw in Michigan, they didn't do that. So that's the, that's the second piece of the bill is if there's a credible threat and you're made aware of it, again, we know that many of these teenage shooters, either on, through social media or through their peers, you know, telegraph much of their activity. And school districts sometimes are paralyzed. Um, so what I'm saying is you must investigate that credible threat and you must do the search. Frankly, this bill is going to have uh, concerns from the left and the right. You know, there are folks, the gun, the gun enthusiasts are not going to like the disclosure piece. And some of the folks on the left are not going to like the mandated search, which tells me I think I hit the sweet spot. If I'm going to have problems but with both ends of the spectrum, I'm probably in the right spot. Yeah, but you know what it also tells me? It tells me that you're probably going to get so many different lawsuits that this thing, even if it passes, is going to be frozen for quite some time while it gets litigated. No, I don't think that's the case. I, I think, you know, 
if we let the threat of a lawsuit stop every piece of legislation, we'd have no legislation. You know, we'd have no laws. I mean, you you can't let you can't say telegraph the opposition and say, don't do it because you're going to get opposition. You do it because it's the right thing to do. I mean, I'm tired of reading in the newspaper about a, a fourth grader who gets shot or a teacher who gets shot or a, a school staffer who gets shot. You know, I, I don't want to tell their parents that we didn't do everything that we can or the grandparent who's going to lose a, a third grader, that we didn't do everything we could uh, in our power to make sure that when we send our precious children off to school, they're safe. And- State Senator Anthony Portantino there. Democrats from La Kenyatta. Senator, thanks for talking to us. Los Angeles is one of the most diverse cities in the world and is known for welcoming people from all around the world. But data gathered by the Center for Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino shows L.A. recorded the most hate crimes among large American cities last year. 615 of them reported to the LAPD, but do the raw numbers tell the whole story about hate crimes here and elsewhere? Brian Levin, the center's executive director with us. Uh, Brian, thanks for talking to us. As we were um, kind of alluding to earlier before the break, do, do these numbers, do they tell the whole story? No, they, they tell a lot of the story. <clears throat> Look, we're seeing, listen to this, L.A. City hit 21st century highs in 2021. But not only that, L.A. City had the highest number of hate crimes of any U.S. city la- last year for the whole uh, 21st century that we're in. Not, not, not 100 years but uh, 21 years. So that, so that's something. But here's the thing. Before you get mad at L.A., New York is at a century high for its hate crime. And we just, you are hearing this first on KNX. Chicago hit a century high today uh, with respect to 2021 data. So we're looking in, in the uh, upper to mid 40% increases uh, in major cities across the United States. that That's something. And do we know why? I think we do. Um, <clears throat> first thing is hate crimes are rising nationally. And in 2020, we kind of set the bar for it with the certain kinds of symbolism that became uh, socially acceptable. You know, Black Lives Matter and progressives are communists that are burning down neighborhoods. And then later in the year, they stole the election. And now uh, the critical race theorists are taking over the schools. That has a a downstream effect. So in L.A., for instance, hate crimes against blacks uh, went from the 70s up to just under 150. So, So we're seeing these stereotypes play a role, particularly around catalytic events. But we've also seen the pandemic have an effect. African-Americans are, are, are the most targeted in, in, in most of the cities. But in, in New York, it was Jews and uh, Chicago was gays last year. But moreover, what I think we're seeing are these printed circuits of stereotypes that label certain people as legitimate targets for aggression. And the pandemic also helped with that with regard to anti-Asian. We are seeing uh, with the Chicago numbers now, over 340% increase in hate crimes against Asians in eight major cities. And to put that in perspective, there were 274 in those cities. There were just five more in 2020 for all the FBI anti-Asian for 
every jurisdiction in the United States that reported. So that's something. We're just five off on anti-Asian with eight, uh, with eight cities versus the whole country FBI the year before. Are we getting better at reporting these two or getting people, getting police to, to take them seriously when they do happen? Yes, I think that's true. And some of the increases that we saw in certain regions and cities over the last decade, like Texas cities, for instance, improved. L.A. has has a gold standard with regard to best policies and practices. I did a study 30 years ago, and as if they read the study and applied it, they're doing great things. They have a hate crime unit. They have a particular guided intake form with supervisory review. They, they have a relationship with the Human Relations Commission. Also, let's not make it a police thing. Advocacy groups, Human Relations Commissions are, are, are all helping. So what I think we're seeing is when you, have a ra- when you have a radar screen, you count more blips than when you're just using line of sight. So one of the things that we're trying to do is to resurrect uh, failed legislation from the last couple of sessions that would make model policies like LA's mandated and standard throughout the state and their reporting, guided reporting form to be used as well. And we didn't just yeah, come out, but, come out from... Right, yeah, but, but, but let me ask something, because uh, I get what you're saying about uh, the difference between, you know, looking at it uh, from a, on a radar screen as opposed to to uh, sight. But I, wa- I also want to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples, because over the past 20, 21 years of, of this century, has the definition of hate crime changed in any substantial way. So in other words, uh, are we looking at what, a, what appears to be an increase in something from, say, 10, 15 years ago, because the definition of a hate crime might be different than it was 10 or 15 years ago? Yes, some categories have been added, but that uh, and some of them were just subdivided, like anti-Sikh in 2015 and anti-Arab, which are counted under other FBI labels. But the bottom line is we are seeing an increase across the board in jurisdictions that haven't changed their particular definitions in that time period. But certainly we're seeing a rising tide of hate crime across the United States. These numbers from the most populous cities are either in respect to double digit percentage increases or in some cities like New York and San Francisco about doubling. And and that's going to have an impact. Remember, last year as well was the worst year, uh, I'm sorry, 2020 rather, was the worst year since 2001. But I don't think it's just some definitional changes and reporting efficiencies. I I think also, by the way, more people are reporting. It used to be, according to Bureau of Justice Statistics, that a minority of hate crime victims are reporting. Now it's, it's a slight majority. But some communities, like the Asian community, immigrant communities, the homeless, and also uh, well, the homeless aren't covered uh, in California. That should change. Uh, but also the disabled are brutalized in, in ways that we never get in the, in the enumeration books. So uh, this kind of data is just so disturbing and it's so consistent across the country that we felt the need, even before our report was done, to come out with some of the highlights. When you're seeing a, you know, uh, just under a, a 50% increase in the major cities in hate crime, and you're seeing triple digit increases against anti-Asian, that's something. Anti-Semitic also up in LA. <laughs> Categories that used to just be in the double digits are now in the triple digits. Brian Levin is the uh, executive director, Center for Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino. Brian, thanks. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. No doubt you've heard the phrase cancel culture thrown around uh, lots of times. Anytime a celebrity or somebody high profile says or does something that creates an uproar, sometimes uh, the words and actions can derail careers. Sometimes they don't. Um, one of the latest ones will be Goldberg suspended for a couple weeks, not uh, yet canceled from The View following remarks about the Holocaust. Uh, she said it was not about race and then uh, apologized um, had somebody on, and it was a whole thing. And then we also have uh, stories today. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff Zucker. Jeff Zucker, who is out as head of CNN after admitting to having a relationship with someone there. This comes a few years after the Me Too movement. Then there's Spotify, Neil Young and Joe Rogan, with uh, us to explain or help to explain cancel culture is Jessica Galani, a media studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, and Deidre Riley, who's author, writer, and contributor to The Federalist and other outlets. She's a critic of cancel culture and just wrote a column about Neil Young's music and freedom of speech. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Jessica, let, let's start the conversation with with you. Is there a any kind of a common thread uh, linking the Whoopi Goldberg case and the Jeff Zucker case and, and the the uh, uh, Joe Rogan case, or are they very much distinct and very different entities? Uh, thank you so much for having me. You know, I I think that the thing that they may have in common is the concept of consequences. And so often when people use the phrase cancel culture, it's it's like a buzz phrase that's become uh, so ambiguous and, and it, it seems to encompass so many different things. Like is a two week suspension from your job for saying something that you didn't think about before saying is that being canceled. You even said that, no, it's, it's not fully a cancellation. So I think it's important that we kind of disentangle this phrase from uh, it being a, a final destination versus like just a temporary moment of consequences for somebody who said something they didn't think about. Deirdre, to you, I mean, if we're going to use the phrase and, and, and talk about canceling somebody, why do some people get canceled and others do not? I mean, we can take Whoopi. Lots of people go on TV and say really dumb things, really wrong things. Uh, she said she made a mistake. She had a guest on. They talked about it. She's apologized. And now she's out for two weeks. And there's there's some people, you know, rising to her defense saying, you know, what? she shouldn't have even been suspended for this. They turned it into something. It was uh, much better than it was the first go around, and maybe everybody learned something. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Jessica. Uh, absolutely. Cancel culture is ambiguous now. And, you know, I, I think part of the problem is we have gotten away from long form conversations. I think Whoopi Goldberg was developing thoughts. I mean, it didn't come out the right way. But we have gotten away from really thoughtful analysis of the issues of our day. And frankly, mass pressure and, you know, social media is horrible. We cancel each other all the time for, for anything. You know, you develop this mass pressure on a cultural person, an icon or someone who is a trendsetter or newsmaker. And that is just a like a snowball. So I believe if we could get back to more long form conversations, let people develop their thoughts, we're all human. We are going to misspeak. I'm going to miswrite sometimes. We're all doing the best we can. 
Yeah, Jessica, I, I mean, I do wonder if, uh, I mean, let, let's go back to the uh, Whoopi Goldberg uh, case, that, um, you know, the rationale that ABC gave uh, for her two-week uh, suspension was to give her time to reflect upon what she said. I, I don't know about you, but there's something kind of, I don't know, sort of Orwellian about that. Do you get the same vibe? I think it's, I don't know if I'd call it Orwellian, but there is something paternalistic about the, you know, the idea that um, she's in a timeout and needs to kind of think about the wrong that she did. But I do think that, like Deidre said, we, we need to make space for people to be able to make mistakes and learn and reflect. Um, and the view is supposed to be a space where people can air their views, differing viewpoints that are uh, in conflict with one another. And we have many occasions where that's been a space for controversial speech for for people to say things that stir up controversy. Um, but you know the arise the rise of cancel culture. Um, it's just the newest way of describing something that's a phenomenon that's been around for a long time. Celebrities have often had scandals that come up that affect their their public opinion or or public view. Um, and it's this is just sort of like the condensed hot take version of uh, any kind of tabloid sort of scandal or, or issue, like with the Zucker situation where, um, you know, he has this relationship that was undisclosed with a coworker who has been promoted through the ranks that he hired uh, many years ago that uh, people understandably have raised eyebrows about. Um, these kinds of stories aren't new. It's just the way that we describe them and try to kind of turn them into these uh, flashpoints or, I guess, new. But Deirdre, uh, I guess maybe one of the things I find interesting about this whole cancel culture culture that we seem to be immersed in is there, there really aren't any standards of punishment. I mean, in the criminal justice system, you can make a very strong argument that, that even there, there are certainly disparities in sentencing. Uh, but at least there are standards that are supposed to be lived up to. But with cancel culture, one company decides, you know, in the case of Whoopi Goldberg, uh, two weeks to think about it. Another company might decide we're going to cancel the entire, you know, show if they're on. And, you know, it, it, there doesn't seem to be any agreement on what a punishment ought to be, if at all. It's so true. And I feel like even some corporations just wait until the issue is out of the public, you know, conversation and then allow the person perhaps to creep back in. But this is the slippery slope that goes down the rabbit hole. I mean, there are no standards, you know, can we all agree? We can't even agree on who to cancel. And it's a very whimsical thing. It's just, you know, however many people you can get to cancel a certain person, let's go ahead and do it. And, you know, I, I sometimes wish we could all get together and cancel, you know, a group like Westboro Baptist Church. You know, there are targets <laughs> that, that we can be need agreed to upon. Get... <laughs> <laughs> can we all agree on that? Could we all start from there? Jessica, uh, let's pick up on a, a thread that Deirdre mentioned in the last segment. The, we don't have long form conversations anymore. Is that also just the world we live in with, you know, social media and just quick clips where everyone responds to each other or or they fire off a tweet or something? I mean, somebody says something that's wrong about 
you know, pick your category, race or gender or, or whatever. Um, don't you fight bad speech with, with like better speech, not censoring it? I think that would be the ideal for sure. But I think that we are in this moment where everyone's rushing to get the fastest, hottest take. And this uh, is sort of the logical uh, follow on from the rise of soundbite driven media. So we have, you know, a lot of our media coverage over the last number of decades has become more oriented toward being less long form and more, you know, soundbite, short, brief, um, make it simple, make it easy. And, you know, with that, we do have the, the loss of that sense of conversation that we can break down an issue, that we can really understand it, we can get in the weeds, and we can allow people to learn and grow and make mistakes and then come back from them. Um, so I, I think that it's part of our media environment that we are in this very fast paced moment that social media has just amplified, um, but that was already present in, you know, the rise of, of kind of cable, uh, 24 hour news. That was a pretty good sound bite right there. (laughs) (laughs) Years of media training has led us to this point. (laughs) Uh, sorry, I couldn't, couldn't resist. Uh, Deidre, uh, let's zero in for a little bit on the Joe Rogan situation, uh, which is a little bit different. Well, not a little bit different. It's a lot different than than Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, in his case, he he claims, as I understand it, that he isn't offering his own opinions uh, or perhaps you know bad opinions about things like the pandemic and vaccination. But he is a conduit for guests who offer these opinions and therefore is no different from other media. Yet you have artists like Neil Young uh, and Joni Mitchell saying, oh, we're out of here and, and, and we're going to take our business elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, it, that, I think it's such an interesting situation. That's why I kind of chose to reflect on it a little bit and write about it. And I think Neil Young, I mean, he's not really going to be hurt. He's He's legendary. And I love Neil so much, but I was disappointed that he decided to kind of, as I put it in the piece, take his ball and go home, because I would like Neil to actually be a vendor in the marketplace of ideas, rather than an isolated force just saying, well, I don't like this. And believe me, I mean, Joe Rogan has some people on that are suspect. It's an entertainment show. He's a host. But where do we draw the line And I feel when it comes to something like our health, particularly our kids' health, I just feel that it's us as consumers to go through the material, go through the information we are offered, process it, talk to our doctors, but not be denied the information. And I think Young, you know, I saw a writer wrote it, used to be rage against the machine. Now it's rage on behalf of the machine. (laughs) And, you know, I... I kind of really jived with that. And, you know, it brought to mind back when um, I loved how we used to handle things. I remember when Neil Young recorded Southern Man and, you know, Leonard Skinner popped up and said, hey, we're going to record Sweet Home Alabama. And they called him out. Now, that was two artists, you know, handling something in public, but they didn't say, you're done, you know, I'm done with you. They handled it. And I think if we can broaden that out, have healthy discourse, you don't have to listen to Joe Rogan, but for Young to take his, he knows his vast effect on a certain segment. Granted, they're probably over 60, but 
you know, and and he's using that uh, to pretty good effect. Deirdre Riley, author, writer, contributor to The Federalist, and uh, also Jessica Galani, media studies professor, University of Pittsburgh, Greensburg. Thanks to you both. This is In-Depth for today. Back tomorrow.